You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 52. Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. By day, I'm a microbiologist. By night, I'm a writer. And every weekend, I bring you my stories, fresh off the writing desk for your enjoyment. My goals are to average at least six hours a week and 600 words per day on my writing. I'll let you know how I'm doing later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first part of Chapter 14 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This story began running in Episode 24, so if you're behind, make sure you go back and catch up before continuing on with this episode. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf are trying to help a group of young nobles who were exposed to the magic of the Telvari Rift Zone. An ill-timed mana surge mutated their bodies and left some of them with unwanted passengers, a group of magical symbionts with incredible psychic power. The presence of these symbionts boosts the power of the psionic abilities these men and women received at the Rift, but in the process, they're also consuming their hosts from the inside out. Two of the unlucky hosts have already died. If the rest of them can't get their magical passengers back to the Rift, they'll soon be joining them. The detectives have an ally in Janus Starson, the field commander of the Lothanasi. Janus has offered the Lightbringer's assistance to help get the symbionts back to the Rift, but first he insists on a meeting with them so he can judge their motives and intentions. One of the hosts, Julia Matthias, is optimistic about the meeting. Another, Misty Halloway, is much more skeptical. Misty's longtime companion, Sephira Hinlassos, has also been affected, but Misty is keeping her hidden away for reasons she has not explained, and she will not reveal Sephi's location to anyone until she is sure the Lightbringers can be trusted. A further complicating factor comes from Julia's boyfriend, Ezekiel Kapler. Because he stands to inherit control of the Rift someday, the symbionts have forced their hosts to keep their existence a secret from Zeke, lest he should try to use their power for his own ends. Zeke has also been changed by the Rift into a frightening, tentacled monster with an ability to teleport objects to himself. If he had the additional power of the symbionts under his control, there's no telling what he would be capable of. The activities around the Rift have drawn the attention of Malcolm Ardvalos, the prince of the Vampire Crime Syndicate in Metamore City. The Syndicate hired a runner, the androgyne Evan and Ava Salindi, to retrieve the autopsy records on the first two victims. The Evan personality found himself attracted to Morgan Drowling, the vampire medical examiner who performed the autopsies. Evan seemingly persuaded Morgan to hand over the records by disguising himself as a government official, but Morgan saw through the ruse and tricked him into letting her tie him up during sex, which was a convenient way to ensure that she could interrogate him. It was Ava who turned the tables on Morgan, and as she chained up the vampire with her own handcuffs, she made a shocking discovery. Morgan, who had been so dominant in her dealings with Evan, became pliant and submissive in the face of Ava's more dominant personality. Ava had some fun of her own with Morgan, then took the autopsy records back to the syndicate, where they were delivered to Malcolm. With this new information in hand, 
Malcolm has decided to capture one of the young lordlings and bring them back to his laboratory for study. Misty Halloway and Julia Mathias both come from powerful noble houses, so Malcolm has decided to go after the weakest, least connected member of the group, Sefi Hinlasos. He has now dispatched an observer to trail Misty Halloway, in the hope that she will lead his agents directly to her hidden friend. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 14 Tuesday, April 10th, 2000, Christos Reckoning Kate returned from her morning run to find a text message waiting for her from Janus. M.V. has been warned off. Can all concerned parties meet tonight at nine? You choose location. She texted him back. I'll ask others and get back to you ASAP. She checked the clock, five after six. Misty was almost certainly still in bed, and Julia would have Zeke looking over her shoulder until Callie delivered his amulet and he could go home. Kate sent Misty a message to call her back and then hit the showers. The reply didn't come until 9 a.m., when Kate was on her second cup of coffee and halfway through her breakfast sandwich. Seeing the caller ID, she clicked it on and signaled David to close the office door. That done, she put the call on speakerphone. Morning, Misty. How are you holding up? Well enough, for now, Misty said. I bought a couple of big mana batteries yesterday before going home, which makes up for being away from the temple. I'm not sure how long they're going to last, though. Understood, Kate said. The associate I mentioned is ready to meet with us tonight at nine, at a place of our choosing. Julia's up for it, as soon as Zeke heads back to his place, which should be later this morning. Are you? There was a brief pause, during which Kate could imagine Misty chewing at her bottom lip. Although, with those new fangs, maybe not. I thought about what you said yesterday. Misty said. I guess the list of people we can trust with this is pretty small, and it's probably not a good idea to spend a lot of time looking for more options. I would have to agree with that, yes, Kate said, trying mightily to keep the snark out of her voice. You know this associate better than I do, Misty went on. If you think we should trust him, then I'll give him a chance. But I'm not bringing him to see Sefi until I'm convinced. He can meet with you, me, Julie, and your partner. That's all. Kate exchanged a look with David. I think that should be fine. Do you have any preferences on a meeting spot? Hmm, I guess someplace open enough to get away if we have to, Misty said, but private enough that we can talk openly. I don't know, don't they usually use parking garages for stuff like this? Kate grinned. That's the way it works in the movies, yeah. In real life, it depends on, well, a lot of things. Such as the likelihood of violence, the nature of the business being discussed, and the resources and manpower available to both sides. But now wasn't the time to bury her in details. I think I can find us a suitable garage, sure. All right, 
I'll meet you at your place and we can go over together. Your dad going to give you any trouble about going out tonight? No, I managed to convince him that I've learned my lesson. I think whatever you told him made a big impact on him. Kate blinked. Really? Huh. I'll tell him I'm going to meet Julie for dinner. He'll be glad to see me getting along with her. I thought the Matthiases were on the wrong side of the aisle, Kate said. Misty snorted. Yeah, and Julie's been pissing off her clan in every way she knows how. Have you noticed who her boyfriend is? Kate shuddered. I know entirely too much about Julie's boyfriend, I think. Exactly. It gives Daddy some kind of perverse satisfaction to see Lord Matthias getting embarrassed. So no, it shouldn't be a problem. All right. See you tonight, then. Kate rang off and pressed her palms against her eyes. Thank Eli, this mess is almost off our hands. I almost don't care what these symbionts are anymore. Yes, you do, David said, equably. You're as curious as a kitten. Kate shot him a glare, then took a gulp of her coffee. All right, yes. But this whole case is giving me headaches. I can't figure out who the bad guys are, other than normal human arrogance and stupidity. Arrogance and stupidity can go a long way in explaining the world's problems, human and otherwise. Malice is almost redundant. I know, Kate said, morosely. Prophet knew she'd seen enough examples of that in her career. So how do we close the case on Travers? Death by misadventure is going to raise some flags in internal affairs when we have the guy's sternum in a few hundred pieces. Let's wait until we get the symbionts back home before we worry about that, David said. Lady Holloway said she would help us clear things up on the case. Maybe she'll be willing to testify against Lord Ezekiel for negligent homicide. Which means pissing off Julie and House Kapler, Kate sighed. And probably Count Holloway when we embarrass his toady in the Senate. David spread his hands. All we have to do is get the evidence. The district attorney will decide how to prosecute. If anyone becomes a political target over this, it'll be him. I'm not sure I like that any better, Kate admitted. Schubert's a good guy. He doesn't deserve this crap. She drummed her fingers on the desk a few times, thinking. What if we give the case back to the Lightbringers? I'll bet you anything High Command's going to classify this top secret and bury it for the next five centuries. Even Halloway can't counter that. Hmm, David said. Not directly. But such an obvious cover-up would draw his attention, which is exactly what the symbionts are afraid of. Kate made a disgusted sound. I'm getting sick of planning everything around the paranoid fears of a bunch of unknown critters. Who are they? How did they end up inside these people in the first place? And why are we trusting them over Halloway? I mean, yeah, the guy's a racist ass, but he's a loyal racist ass. I don't think he's going to sell out the Empire for the sake of... of ultimate cosmic power or whatever. David's mouth twitched in distaste. Perhaps we'll get a better sense of things at tonight's meeting. As if on cue, Kate's phone rang. She glanced at the caller ID before answering. Good morning, Julie. He's gone. Julie said without preamble. Where and when is the meeting, detective? Nine tonight. Meet at my place at 8.30. I'll text you the address. Misty's on board, but she's keeping Sefi under wraps for now. If anybody asks, you're meeting her for dinner. Very well, Julie said. Is anyone else coming? You, me, and David. 
and our associate who promised to come alone. That's all. Good. See you tonight, detective. Julie rang off. Kate texted her address to Julie. Then she and David set to work finding a meeting spot that seemed suitably far from prying eyes. She made a mental note to talk to Jessica, Ms. Fallon's abjurer in residence, about setting up anti-scrying wards for Kate and her guests. With that done, she opened the police department's encrypted email system and began typing a message to Janus with the details. She was about to click send when her finger hesitated over the mouse button. David looked up from his desk, already deep into work on another case. Catherine, your heart rate just went up. Is something wrong? Don't know, she admitted. Just got a feeling that using email for this might be a bad idea. You've been calling and texting people about it all morning, he pointed out. Email is more secure than that. Yeah, but we never discussed the location. I've got a better idea. Taking out a sheet of letterhead, she cleared a spot on her desk and laid out the paper in front of her. She wrote Janus's name clearly across the top of the page. Then she leaned back in her chair and called up the memory of the true name encryption spell that Misty had used to contact her. Once it was clear in her mind, she took out her Arthana, focused her will, and spoke the words that would channel her mana into the spell. The tip of the dagger lit up, a small dot of blue-green light. Using that spot of light like the tip of a pen, Kate scrawled out her message to Janus. The letters appeared in glowing light above the surface of the page. Once she was done, she spoke the final command word to seal the spell. The glowing letters melted into the page and vanished. After putting away the Arthana, Kate folded the paper into thirds, slid it inside an envelope, sealed it, and addressed it to Janus at Lothanasi headquarters. Ten minutes later, a courier picked it up and sped across town to deliver the message into Janus's hand. Soon a text message from Janus popped up on her phone. Message received. See you there. Well, the meeting's as safe as I can make it, Kate said, showing her phone to David. Let's hope it's enough. Kate was nearing the end of her workday when she got a call from Morgan. Hey, can you come down to my office? The vampire's voice was low, subdued, and completely serious. Kate's instincts began flashing warning signs. Sure thing. Be there in five. Kate rang off, nodded briefly to David, and headed for the morgue. Kate found Morgan on her hands and knees in her office. She had a can of scouring powder and was scrubbing out the grout between the floor tiles with an old toothbrush. The floor looked clean enough to Kate already, and the rest of the office was spotless, without a smudge of dirt or a scrap of paper in sight. Morgan did not look up as she approached, but kept attacking the grout with short, sharp scrubbing motions, her eyes fixed on the floor in front of her. Kate's internal warning signs rose from yellow to red. Hey, Morgan. Kate leaned up against the doorframe, playing casual until she knew how bad it was. Kate, thank you for coming. Scrub, scrub, scrub. Come in and shut the door, please. Kate examined the bottoms of her shoes, then slipped them off and left them at the door before coming inside. Rough day at the office? I couldn't tell you, Morgan said. Just got in maybe an hour ago. 
Kate went to sit at the edge of the desk, then thought better of it and took the chair. Rough night, then? Morgan barked a laugh, short, sharp, and strained, not at all like her usual warm chuckle. Oh, my night was amazing. Best I've had in years. Scrub, scrub, scrub. Kate's heart began pounding out a warning. She struggled to keep her breathing steady and calm. This was bad. Morgan's voice rang with utter sincerity, but the anger and anxiety in her body language. So, um, what's the problem? Kate asked. I fucked up. The words came out harsh and flat. That pretty boy from Minhealth was a runner. He got the files on Reigns and Travers. Kate stared. What? How? Scrub, scrub, scrub. Like I said, I fucked up. Let my guard down. He came prepared and incapacitated me. Hit my weak spots. She gritted her teeth and scrubbed harder. Stupid of me. I'm sorry. Kate got off the chair and knelt beside her. Carefully, she put a hand on Morgan's shoulder. Morgan didn't snap at her or shake it off. It happens, Kate said, quietly. Do you have any idea who he was working for? Morgan slapped the toothbrush onto the floor and folded her hands in her lap, visibly reining herself in. After a moment, she started examining her fingernails instead. I got his name, Evan Salindi. Spent most of the day trying to find out whatever I could, and it's not much. He'll work for just about anybody if the price is right. Kate frowned. Vampires? He's worked for them, yes. I couldn't find out if he was this time. But he doesn't come cheap. Kate sat back on her haunches, thinking. Malcolm's been going after House Kapler in the media lately. Do you think he made the connection between Kapler and Travers? Or how? The thought crossed my mind, Morgan said, quietly. We know Malcolm's interested in the rift. If he reads those reports and figures out what's going on... Kate completed the thought. He'll be after the others. Gods, we've got to get them out of the city. Morgan looked up at her, her dark eyes full of shame and self-recrimination. I've put you in danger. Danger's part of my job, Kate said, reaching out and squeezing her hand once. I'm more worried about Malcolm getting his hands on these people. I'll do whatever I can to help, Morgan said. What's your plan? We're meeting with Janus tonight. If we're lucky, the Lightbringers will agree to transport them to... someplace safe. Kate badly wanted to tell Morgan about the symbionts, but she wasn't going to bring anyone else in on that secret without getting permission first. Morgan nodded very slightly, acknowledging Kate's moment of self-censorship and accepting it. All right. If you need backup, you let me know. Kate smiled, sincerely. I will. Thanks for the warning. I wish I could do more, Morgan said. I fear I made a bad situation worse. Don't worry about it, Kate said, rising. But if you ever see Evan Salindi again, you beat his ass for me, okay? Morgan froze. Then she reached down, picked up the toothbrush, and started scrubbing again. Um, yes. Beat his ass. Thoroughly, I assure you. 
Kate looked at her curiously for a long moment, then turned and headed out. She probably didn't want to know. And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. What will happen at tonight's meeting? Will Janus be able to persuade the symbionts to trust him? Will Kate be able to keep the meeting secure? And what's Ezekiel Kapler been up to since he left Julia's apartment? The mystery continues next week. Jeffrey Carver said, Right from the soul not from some notion about what you think the marketplace wants. The market is fickle. The soul is eternal. So, let's take a look at what my soul has been working on. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,064 words this week, over the course of 7.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 653 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I have gone 25 days without breaking my chain. I've nearly finished Chapter 21 of The Lost and the Least, and the manuscript is now over 74,000 words. I'm currently at that point in the novel where I'm wrestling to get all of the characters to the next major plot point. The path I'd planned on in the outline didn't really work, so now I have to figure out a better way to get everyone where I need them to be. It's a little frustrating, but hey, this is why you have to actually write the book, right? Some of the best parts in making the cut and things unseen were never part of my outline. So for now, I'm just going to keep pushing forward and trust my subconscious writer brain to get me to the destination. Looking ahead to Balticon, we now have confirmation that there will be a Metamore City retrospective panel on Saturday afternoon, probably at 4 o'clock. We're going to use this as a chance to connect with the fans and get the word out about Metamore City before the big live show on Sunday. I'll be doing a reading from The Lost and the Least, too, so come on out and join us if you want a sneak peek at what's to come. And now, the feedback. People seem to really enjoy last week's episode. D-Dog tweeted, Saving people, hunting things. The Lothanasi business. Maurice Oakes said, I love, love, love Malcolm. I have to admit I squeed a bit for the Malcolm and Janus. It was like watching two apex predators thrown into a cage together, circling. Maybe I'm fanboying it up a bit much, but that's how I viewed it. Great work, as always. And upon discovering Malcolm was back, Mark Stone said, Yay! Sharpened steak. Thanks, you guys. I'm so glad you're enjoying the story. It was so much fun putting Malcolm and Janus in a room together. I appreciate the wary respect that these two adversaries have for each other. You might say they're the best of enemies. Relationships like that are always fun to write. Fester Adams wrote, Listen to the episode earlier today, and I like the scene with Morgan and Evan slash Ava but I have to admit that while I can totally see Morgan as a switch, I'd think it would also be really hard on her, based on how she was made into a vampire. Unquote. It's true that Morgan has gone through some pretty traumatic stuff. Becoming a slave to a man like Braddock is never going to be good for your self-esteem or your sanity. 
But people can heal from trauma, and the things in Morgan's personality that made her susceptible to Braddock in the first place are still a part of her. Morgan has gone a few years now without having someone to fill that dominant role in her life, and that unfulfilled need created a weak spot that Ava was able to take advantage of. As for where they go from here, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Patricia Elkins Matson wrote, I've been going to Balticon much less often since moving down from Pennsylvania to North Carolina, but I'd been thinking of going back for the 50th. Hearing about the live reading and the possible retrospective panel, along with the new media ball, has been the tipping point. I just registered and I am looking forward to it. Unquote. And we're looking forward to having you there, Patricia. Balticon 50 is going to be a blast. There are so many cool things being planned this year that there's no way I'll have time for everything I'd like to see and do. If you're within driving distance of downtown Baltimore for Memorial Day weekend, you've got to come down and join us. Don't forget, the new Media Ball is on Saturday night at 10, and Metamore City Live is on Sunday at 6. I can't wait to see everybody there. Maurice Oakes wrote another message, too. He says, Question for you, Chris Lester. Have you thought about looking into minor merchandise? I was thinking as a fan thing, a great marker for us would be the warding pendants people can wear in Metamore to prevent the curse. It's a very cool idea, Maurice. Unfortunately, that kind of custom designer merchandise is not always practical. To get something that looks good, I'd probably have to shell out a lot of money up front to pay for a huge bulk order of them, and I just don't think I can sell enough of them to recoup my losses. I am interested in doing another run of Metamore City t-shirts, though. CustomInc.com did a great job with the first run, and the quality on those shirts was honestly a lot better than the print-on-demand shops like Zazzle or Cafe Press. To make that happen, though, I'd have to collect pre-orders from at least 20 people. Otherwise, the cost per shirt is too high to make it worthwhile. If you'd be interested in a new Metamore City shirt, send me an email or leave a post in the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Maurice also asked about how people get the curse in Metamore City. He writes, Any chance of getting a good walkthrough of the process? I'd love to hear a short story on someone going through the process of taking the curse. Well, Maurice, I can point you at two sources for that. The first is my recent short story, Missing Pieces, which aired on this podcast a few months ago. That story followed a young transgender male who wanted to get the androgyne curse so his body would match his gender identity. There was also a story that was written for the Metamorph City Interregnum way back in 2010. It was called Rebirth, and it was contributed by an author named Chris Vidston. You can still find it in the Metamore City archives. It's MCP Special Update Number 6, and it aired on April 10th, 2010. You should check it out. It's quite good. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook page is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And if you want to support the show and help me keep making it, you can sign up for a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. 
The links will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Laster and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.